Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This week's topic is the Central Intelligence Agency in the Nixon administration. In August, the CIA will be releasing all the daily briefings the agency disseminated during the Nixon and Ford administrations at a special event at the Nixon Presidential Library. Here with us to discuss this subject is David Priest, author of the newly released book, The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings from Kennedy to Obama. Priest served in the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations as an award-winning intelligence officer, manager, and daily briefer at the CIA, as well as a desk officer at the State Department. He has his PhD from Duke University and is currently a director for Analytic Inc., offering specialized training, mentoring, and consulting services to the intelligence community, other government offices, and the private sector. An outstanding book, David. How, how did you catch former President Bush's attention and get him to write the foreword? Well, thank you. The research for this was a snowball effect. I started researching, finding information out about the president's daily brief, the top-level intelligence document that has gone to chief executives for the last 50-plus years. And as I found information and started talking to some of the people connected with it, they would either introduce me to others or I would call others and say, this is the research I have done. And they were almost universally enthusiastic about the idea and wanting to share some of their stories involving this topic that had really been unaddressed. So by the time I got to the presidents themselves, normally I had spoken with their national security advisors, their CIA directors, and others whom they trusted, and they were eager to give me their insights on the president's daily brief. And can you give me a little bit of your background? Um, how did you, uh, sure. kind of inspired you to write this book? Well, I had been looking back for a sense of history of the PDB briefings, as they're called, because I had been a PDB briefer myself. I had delivered the book to some of the people that President George W. Bush had designated to receive it in his administration. And I found that there really was not a, a good history there to inform me about what had happened before so that I could avoid the mistakes of the past. Years later, after the job, I thought about it a little more seriously and started looking back into presidential memoirs into other works, and found that there were bits of material there discussing it, but they were scattered, and no one had pulled it all together. So doing a little bit of exploration by visiting a few of the presidential libraries, such as the Nixon Library, to do some primary research on the documents there, by speaking with some of the people involved, I figured there was enough here to tell a full story of this unique window into both the presidency and into American intelligence. Now, what is the presidential daily briefing and how did it how did it come into effect the top level daily intelligence document that goes to the united states president is called the president's daily brief or shortened to the pdb or simply in intelligence circles the book this is a short compendium of intelligence analysis and in some cases raw intelligence information that gives the president what he needs to know and in theory does not give the president what he does not need to know. It's in the very name. It's the president's book. It's daily, usually six days a week for most presidents. But it is brief. Most often in its history, it has been less than 10 pages. Occasionally, it has gone more than that with supplements and annexes. But the whole idea is to give the president on the toughest national security decisions facing him, on meetings with foreign leaders, on upcoming foreign visits, to give him timely, objective, and hopefully accurate intelligence assessments of the unknowns in international affairs to try to bound the uncertainty in national security 
and help make those tough decisions. And what sort of intelligence reports was the president receiving before the PDB came even in existence? Right. For most of United States history, presidents received nothing at all that we would consider intelligence analysis. There might be diplomatic cables from the State Department, perhaps a note from the Secretary of State analyzing a particular situation overseas, but there simply was not a bureaucracy designated to provide objective analysis to the president. World War II, Franklin Roosevelt started to get some of that through the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. They get a lot of attention for the daring do in Europe and in East Asia during the war, but they don't get as much credit for the Office of Reports and Estimates, where they did analysis of things going on during the war, and some of those products did reach FDR. After the war, Harry Truman was president, and he started getting a daily intelligence document. Now, it was provided to him and for him, but it was not personally tailored to him in the way that products later on would be. That really started under John F. Kennedy when the CIA produced the forerunner to the president's daily brief. And uh, so we look at the CIA. Who, on the, who in the intelligence apparatus writes, writes these briefings? Through most of its history, the president's daily brief has been a product of the Central Intelligence Agency. The predecessor document I just mentioned for John F. Kennedy, they called that the President's Intelligence Checklist, and that started in 1961. That did evolve into the PDB in 1964. And that was produced by CIA. Those are analysts at CIA headquarters taking in the information from across the U.S. government, such as overhead imagery, State Department reporting, human intelligence reports, signals intelligence or intercepted communications, taking all of that information along with open sources such as foreign media and putting together a picture of what's happening on a particular country or issue around the world. CIA occasionally over the decades would get input from other intelligence agencies on that, but it was largely a CIA product. That all changed a little over 10 years ago in the aftermath of the 9-11 Commission the WMD Commission on Iraq, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was created, and the PDB stopped being a CIA-only product and became a product of the entire intelligence community overseen by the Director of Intelligence himself. In that way, it now broadens its inputs. Its pieces can be written by anyone in the intelligence community. It is still largely a CIA document just because CIA does most of that all-source intelligence work, but it is a document that incorporates elements and can have writers and briefers from across the other intelligence agencies. Moving on to the Nixon administration, uh, you write that Nixon first received his daily briefings while in New York at, at the campaign headquarters and later transition headquarters, uh, specifically here the transition headquarters at the Pierre Hotel. Uh, can you right. describe how this came about? Yeah, that was the plan, at least. It did not work out quite the way that the CIA intended. In Manhattan, in mid-November of 1968, when it was clear that the new president was Richard Nixon, the CIA established an unprecedented support hub for the intelligence needs of both President-elect Nixon and his staff, just steps away from, from the Hotel Pierre. They put an office there. They were trying to get the president's daily brief, which Lyndon Johnson was still getting, 
but traditionally the CIA has provided it upon the president's direction to the president-elect. They were trying to get the PDB to Nixon's office, but also trying to provide intelligence support to Richard Nixon's top national security staff. They did get the PDB to Nixon's office. That worked well. Every morning by 5.30, the officers at that station received the top-secret PDB and other intelligence reports via a secure communications link. They put it into an envelope and delivered it up to Rosemary Woods, who had the appropriate clearances and a place to store the classified material. What they found was over time, they weren't getting any feedback on these documents. They were having plenty of meetings with people like John Mitchell, the Attorney General-designate, and others, Henry Kissinger. They were having meetings and discussions and briefing people up on intelligence issues in the administration, but nothing from the president-elect himself. And it was only near the end of the transition period that they found that Nixon, in fact, had, had not looked at any of them. The envelopes were returned unopened. What we don't know is why. There's the possibility he was just a busy man and being someone who is well-versed in foreign affairs already, he did not feel the need to be reading what Lyndon Johnson was dealing with at the time. It could have also been that people like Dr. Kissinger and others who were reading those documents were going into discussions with him and briefing him, and he did not feel the need to duplicate their efforts. Did, do you feel that Nixon um, felt that, you know, being an expert in foreign affairs, um, where did he want to get his, um, I guess, intelligence from a, consumer, a constant consumer of information? Right. Uh, where did he feel uh, best to, to receive his information about uh, the ongoings in the world? Well, the system that developed probably reflects the president's wishes. Um, you have to make that assumption that any national security briefing mechanism is what the president wants or else it would change rather quickly. And what happened is Henry Kissinger took control of both the president's national security sessions and the related papers going into the Oval Office, including the president's daily brief. That is, there was not an independent CIA briefing of the president, either during the transition or then once Richard Nixon was in office. Uh, Kissinger handled that. Kissinger dominated the PDB process like no other national security advisor had up to that time. In fact, back during the transition, Henry Kissinger had directed his military assistant, Al Haig, to discover and recommend any changes to the Lyndon Johnson administration's distribution and handling of the PDB. The PDB had been coming in. Johnson had been reading it. Haig learned that Johnson had been getting it early in the morning, at or before 6.30 in the morning, giving him nearly up-to-the-minute information when he would come down and read it early in the morning. Kissinger had something else in mind. Starting on Nixon's first day in office, they did have a CIA briefer deliver the president's daily brief, but they had him deliver it in the afternoon before, that is, around 5.30 p.m. This introduced a 16- or 17-hour delay in the information by the time Nixon read it the next morning, but it did allow Dr. Kissinger to look at the document to prepare a cover memo highlighting which issues were most relevant to the president's agenda, perhaps putting in there things that he disagreed with so that the president would have everything in one place rather than having to play catch-up during the morning. You mentioned Dr. Kissinger and President Nixon's um, efforts to reinvigorate the National Security Council, bring both defense and foreign policy into the White House. Mm -hmm. um, right. How do you think Nixon envisioned the CIA's role given a more robust National Security Council? Right. 
Well, there are two sides to that. One side I did not look at for this book and have little to offer to the literature that's been out there, and that's on the operations side. And certainly President Nixon and Henry Kissinger were interested in what the CIA could do for national security purposes overseas, particularly through covert action. Uh, The side I looked at, which had not been analyzed much before, is the analytic side. That is, how did they treat the product of the intelligence analysis coming out of the Central Intelligence Agency? And overall, Nixon and Kissinger were, frankly, dismissive of most of the product they received. Uh, They found it, in Dr. Kissinger's words to me, liberally biased, thinking that the analysis shop at the CIA was basically the editorial page of the New York Times and finding that it didn't give them what they needed to know. That doesn't mean that they didn't read it. Certainly, certainly Henry Kissinger read the CIA materials, received lots of CIA briefings, did engage with the material. Nixon, less so. Certainly there was a CIA briefing at the National Security Council sessions that the CIA director would usually tee up with an intelligence briefing. But when it comes to the daily intelligence, the current finished intelligence of intelligence analysis, it appears that there was a much more distant relationship there between President Nixon and his CIA. Nixon was endly, uh, endlessly fascinated with the, with the architecture of government, government and, its, um, mm-hmm. and, and its machinery. Did he want to change the Central Intelligence Agency at all in its role? I did find some things in the research about his, his interests. Sometimes they were just side comments. And anyone who studied Richard Nixon knows that there were a lot of side comments issued out to the chief of staff or to others that sometimes were just in fits and were not followed up on, and sometimes he would follow up on and then pursue. He made many disparaging comments towards the CIA about trying to fire many of its officers or cut it in half and wondering what the hell are they doing out there, those kinds of things. None of those translated into serious action with with a few exceptions. One of those was the fact that when he changed CIA directors, originally Richard Helms had been the CIA director inherited from the Johnson administration and kept on as a non-political appointee, but eventually he replaced him with the much younger Jim Schlesinger, who had been chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, and he shared some of the president's views on the Central Intelligence Agency. He had also served as deputy director of the Bureau of the Budget and had completed a study on the intelligence community for the president back in 1971. And that take was not entirely positive, and it may have been a reason why Nixon selected him to do some cleanup at the agency based on his report. That's one of the best clues we have. Schlesinger didn't stay there very long to put that into effect, however. He was only there for a matter of months before President Nixon moved him on to become Secretary of Defense. So we don't know what that plan would have been if it would have fully developed. You write that one of the Nick one of the things that Nixon was critical about was the, um, and Kissinger, Kissinger as well, was the excess verbiage and editorializing mm-hmm. of the daily briefings. Um, how, how did CIA analysts adapt um, to uh, the criticism from on top? Yeah, it's, it's a funny dynamic there because on the one hand, analysts who feel that their purpose is to write for the president and then for other senior policymakers when when you're not getting the feedback in return, when you're not getting the sense that the product is being appreciated, uh, there is almost an emotional aspect to it of all of this work going into this, and then it is dismissed or ignored. 
And so you, you try to put more effort in, but if the effort isn't rewarded, it's understandable that some people might have just started not blowing it off, but certainly not putting the same level into the analysis for the president that they did for other policymakers. On the other hand, there's a, a story I write up in the book near the end of President Nixon's term when clearly the political winds in the agency around the time that Watergate was coming to a head and the resignation was coming close in 1974, it was clear that most of the people of the agency uh, were feeling that it's, it's time for this president to move on. And yet they were sitting there doing the work for that very president. The apolitical ethos of the place did not mean that people denied they had political views. Every American does. The ethos is that despite those political views, you put your head down and you do the work for the presidency, if not for the person of the president, the, the office of the president, to make sure that the national security needs of the country are being met. And that was a back and forth during the Nixon administration that, that certainly played out in terms of the current intelligence, producing a document every day for a president who they weren't sure read it very carefully at all because they weren't getting feedback. But on the other hand, they knew they had to keep producing it for the benefit of the nation. Kissinger brought in an expert at the Rand Corporation, um, a fellow named mm -hmm. Andrew Marshall, uh, right. to evaluate uh, the quality of the intelligence reports. Uh, mm -hmm. what, did, what did Marshall find? Well, it's fun. Uh, Andrew Marshall went on to become quite a, a guru at the Pentagon and retired only recently after decades working on futures at the, at the Pentagon. When he brought in uh, the, the younger Andrew Marshall to, to work as a consultant for the National Security Council, he had him look into the use of presidential intelligence. And he found that, in fact, the situation room reporting that the staff was producing for the president was probably the only thing they could guarantee the president read. And there was quite a bit of overlap between that and the CIA's President's Daily Brief and other products. Marshall pointed out the real tension here. He said, on the one hand, if we're giving the president documents expecting him to read all of them, and he looks at them and sees a significant overlap, the president of the United States has a schedule measured down to the minute. There's no way he's going to waste his time with overlap. On the other hand, there's a significant percentage of the information in the president's daily brief that is not included in the Situation Room reporting. Therefore, there's something that he might need to know that he does not get, and this could lead to a disaster for the president and for the National Security Advisor. So he proposed some reforms. He proposed eliminating the duplication, some better coordination between the Situation Room and the CIA involving what was in each item. The only real modification that came out of it was that Kissinger wanted to see a sample of a new format for the daily cover memo that reduced the number of analytic items in the situation report and added a brief second section of just merely descriptive items. But the fundamental problem remained unaddressed, such that even three years after this report, several senior Nixon staffers told CIA officers that they were still drawing on that president's daily brief for their own cover memo that went to the president each morning. You mentioned Marshall and how um, he had just retired recently. He was the yeah. Pentagon's director of net assessment, and before that, the National Security right. Council's director of uh, net assessment. Um, did this department, um, specifically the Office of Net Assessment, compete at all with what the CIA was trying to do? I found no evidence of any competition in that regard. It would not surprise me if some of the work being done there filtering around the national security bureaucracy led to some ideas and perhaps even even vice versa but there was no formal role for the net assessments office 
to play in the PDB process. And, and that makes sense if you think about it because there are very different purposes. The Net Assessments Office very rarely was giving briefings to the President of the United States, certainly not on current intelligence issues, whereas that is the sole purpose of the President's daily brief, to do just that. You had mentioned that later in 73, um, Schlesinger steps down at CIA and goes to become the Secretary mm -hmm. of Defense, and the President appoints William Colby, um, a career CIA guy, got to start in the OSS, Office of Strategic Services. Um, right. At CIA chief, can you go a little bit into his background and uh, sure. and tell us what, what he tried to do with the uh, presidential daily briefing? Sure. Uh, yeah, Colby had been around CIA for a while. He'd served as an operations officer in the field. He'd served as a senior manager of covert actions. He finally received Senate confirmation as CIA director, I believe, in in July. He did take over. He started briefing the president at formal National Security Council meetings, as his predecessors in the office, Dick Helms and Jim Schlesinger, had done. But his relationship to Nixon remained just as distant as those predecessors. In fact, he said later on that in more than a year as director, he received one and only one phone call directly from the president, which was a question, I believe, about China. So he focused his attention instead on re-energizing the current intelligence, saying, if I'm not going to be talking to the president, I want to make sure that the papers we have going to the president and other top-tier officials are getting the most bang for the buck. So he did a few things. The most dramatic one involving the CIA's product line was he took the product that was one level down from the president's daily brief, which had been called the Central Intelligence Bulletin for many years. And he winnowed it down and decided that he would revamp the line, creating a new document called the National Intelligence Daily, or the NID. And to do something creative, he had it printed like a newspaper. He thought that senior customers would like getting it in the format that they got most of their other news, which is through the newspapers. It didn't work for everybody. Uh, Kissinger said that he couldn't take it seriously because it looked like a newspaper, but most other recipients warmed to the idea. What that enabled the CIA to do, shifting to the NID as one of the top-level intelligence documents, it enabled the CIA to streamline the distribution of all current intelligence publications. And so the President's Daily Brief, which had been floating around to quite a few people underneath the President, returned to a very exclusive status that it had seen when the John F. Kennedy President's Intelligence Checklist was first created. In fact, the President's Daily Brief started going exclusively to the White House for the President and the National Security Advisor only. It was not even going to senior officials at the State Department and the Pentagon. One of the biggest intelligence failures um, admitted by the CIA was the Egyptian and Syrian invasion of uh, Israel during the October uh, 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Um, how, did right. the, how did the CIA miss this? Yeah, the Book of Secrets on that day was not very helpful to the president. It was completely, disastrously, embarrassingly wrong. U.S. intelligence agencies, along with Israeli intelligence agencies, had judged that Syria and Egypt, facing what was clearly an overwhelming Israeli military, would not start a new war. And intelligence information coming in was filtered through that framework, such that when Egypt started ramping up, increasing some cross-canal, uh, Suez Canal, some cross-canal probes 
doing very realistic military exercises, this was all seen as bluster. It was not seen as much else. So the morning of the Egyptian attack, the the most senior officers were reading intelligence telling them that Egypt is not going to attack. The language in there was the exercise and the activities underway in Egypt may be on a somewhat larger scale and more realistic than previous exercises, but they do not appear to be preparations for a military offensive against Israel. Of course, Egypt invades Israel, and it's a colossal intelligence failure. And it's one that some of the officers involved in it took very seriously and used as an excuse in their future. They would always work a little bit harder to re-examine their assumptions and their views. Now, to be fair, Dr. Kissinger takes some of the blame as well. He says, yes, this was an intelligence failure, but this was really a political failure, too. He said, we were all fooled by this because we did not understand what Anwar Sadat's goals were before the conflict. And as a final question, uh, President Nixon resigns in 1974, uh, just mm-hmm. a little less than a year after the October, October War. How did, the, sure. how did the CIA and the presidential daily briefing evolve from the Nixon administration? Yeah, I didn't see any formal changes in the PDB after that event. I have a feeling it was more that the analysts working on it took extra care to check their assumptions and to look for alternative explanations. After the Nixon administration, the, the PDB went on to be formatted for every president based on that president's personal needs and preferences. Gerald Ford got a daily briefing of the PDB. Instead of simply reading it, he would sit with a CIA officer for the first year of his term and get an in-person briefing. Other presidents have gone back and forth whether they receive briefings or not, but the president's daily brief that Richard Nixon saw has continued up to this day with President Barack Obama receiving the PDB now on an iPad instead of as ink on paper, but still looking at the same document that he received. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Avroidas signing off.